you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. We're just moving ahead in our next chapter in our study through this pivotal book. And with it, we're, we're coming to one of the most important and consequential chapters in the whole Bible. I don't mean that as an overstatement. Uh, you, when you think about, about important chapters in the Bible, you think Romans 8, you think John 3. You, hardly, when people think of what are some of the most important chapters in the Bible, does anyone say Acts 15? But it is. It, it is one of the most important and consequential chapters in the whole Bible in the sense that the decisions that were made at the, at the council of the, that's taking place in this chapter are... Um, they, they still affect today how we understand the gospel. How we understand how a person comes to receive salvation in Christ. It, it shapes how we understand the church. All of that is here in this, uh, in this chapter. The Council of Jerusalem that's recorded here is perhaps the most seminal moment of the early church. The focal issue, like I've just said, of this, of this uh, council is going to be how we receive the, 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 the salvation that Jesus purchased for us. How do we receive that? Jesus has, has, has come and he's lived a, a substitutionary life, a sinless one, substitutionary life for us. He's died a substitutionary death. He has risen from the dead for our eternal life. The question is, how do I receive that? How, how do I actually join myself to the benefits that, that Jesus Christ purchased, lived and died and rose again to purchase for me. How does someone take what Jesus did for our salvation and benefit from it? That's the question that was being debated and worked out in real life in this meeting in Acts chapter 15. They were trying to come to a consensus across Jew and Gentile about what a person must do to be saved. And so that's what I want us to consider as we move through this account in Acts 15 in the, the account of the Council of Jerusalem. I want to think about receiving the grace of the Lord Jesus. I, I think God was, was very kind to us to leave us this council recorded for us in Scripture so that not just they in that day, but every successive generation can sort of, as they come to this chapter, sort of reconvene with them and and, uh, and, and hear again the, the decision that they reached and be clear on the gospel. We're going to look at almost the whole chapter. We're going to leave the, the last five or so verses for the next time. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 35. So if you found uh, Acts 15 in your Bible, let's, let's read it together before we dive in. Verses 1 to 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you were circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were uh, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And 
They declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. All the, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this... The words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he quotes Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men Uh, among the brothers with the following letter the brothers both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the gentiles in antioch and syria and cilicia greetings we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds although we gave them no instructions it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them, and to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. We, uh, we confess our faith that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. 
I also am in this, as I stand here in this very moment, just am reminded how um, broken and errant and wayward I, my own heart can be. And here I am standing to teach. And any of us sitting here uh, receiving this word are, are the same. So Holy Spirit, we need your help. I need your help to teach. We all need your help to hear your word and to hear it to, and have minds to understand what's said, to have uh, hearts that, that don't dismiss it, but, but embrace and love it and accept it, receive it, and wills to obey whatever it calls us to do. Lord, we need your help in this moment. So please give us all ears to hear. Give me help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so what we just read, I think it, it does very obviously and very naturally sort of break up into three different movements when we read about what took place here. So I think the opening verses of this chapter give us the context of what's going on. What gave rise to this meeting? Why is it, why is it even happening? What was the issue? And then beginning around verse 4 all the way through around verse 19, we have the council itself. Who was there? What were the arguments? What took place at the council? And then finally, uh, beginning around verse 20, and then the letter that they sent to the church in Antioch, we have the correction that they implemented, the conclusions that they drew, and what it means for us. So that's where we're headed. So let's think first about the context um, that we find here from these early verses. So what, what's going on here? Well, think about, you're in Acts chapter 15. Don't just think about it as an isolated chapter. Uh, Think about the context of what we've seen already so far, why it's placed here in the book of Acts. Um, Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey, and that, ha- that, that journey had begun and ended in Antioch of Syria, it, which was, just so you know, Antioch in Syria was a major city. It was in that, at that time, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, and it was a, a large Jewish population. That's the church that sent them out. That's the church that received them back when they returned. And look back quickly in chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. And it says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared uh, all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So they were having a great time. God had blessed them. As the church in Antioch sent them out, they prayed for God's blessing. And God's blessing attended them on that trip as they went from city to city. Those you, as you uh, saw, if you were here on this first missionary journey, just, just because God's grace is attending you doesn't mean that you will be trouble-free. They had a lot, a lot of trouble on that trip. But God blessed them. God had done great things through them, especially in Gentiles coming to faith. Lots and lots of Gentiles coming to Christ. And the church in Antioch was just as eager to hear these stories as Paul and Barnabas, no doubt, were eager to tell them. And that's where chapter 14 ends. Uh, They're still in Antioch, rejoicing that how many Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. That's where it sits as chapter 15 begins. And verse 1, though, sets up the context for the rest of the chapter. So look at at verse 1 in, in chapter 15. It begins by saying, but some men came down from Judea. Now, to say that means they came from Jerusalem, which was in Judea. We know that later because from later in in verse 24, uh, James in Jerusalem says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words. So that from us 
means from Jerusalem. So verse 1, when it says some men came down from Judea, that means from Jerusalem. And as, as James says there in verse 24, they troubled them with words. What exactly did they say? Look at verse 1. What they said was they were teaching these men from Judea, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In fact, it's not on the screen, but if you just look down at verse 5, they, they went further and said at the end of verse 5, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, That's what they were saying. This is what you should do with these Gentile believers, these masses of Gentiles that have come in from each town. You forgot one thing, Paul. You forgot to circumcise them according to the law. You forgot to tell them they must keep the law. That's a huge deal. Because... That is, that is completely undercutting and contradicting everything that Paul and Barnabas had, had taught concerning the gospel in Antioch in Syria, in Antioch of Pisidia, in Lystra, in Iconium, in Derbe, all these cities, they had taught a different gospel than that. And if you look, again, look at chapter 14, verse 27, again, just one more time, and notice that what... Paul and Barnabas reported back to the church at Antioch, it says they reported all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith. Faith to the Gentiles. Looking back further in chapter 14, look at verse 15 in chapter 14, when he's in Lystra and and it says the good news that he was bringing to them was the news that they should turn from the vain things that they were Uh, of their old life, and turn to the living God. Turn away from this, turn to this. Repent from your old way, turn to Jesus. Repentance and faith. Leave your old life, follow Him. That's it. Repent, believe. Grace alone through faith alone. and, and, And many had received that message. And now these guys come from Jerusalem, and, and they are totally contradicting that in the presence of this large gentile church if you don't do this or that namely if you don't if you aren't circumcised according to the law of moses and you don't observe the law of moses quote unquote you cannot be saved not at all surprisingly verse 2 says that paul and barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them i would say that might be the biggest understatement in scripture I mean, I know we have the Spirit-inspired statement here, but I really would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that dissension and debate. The gospel was at stake. We actually do have a little more clarification of what what happened here uh, and what gave rise to this Jerusalem council actually in Galatians chapter 2. So just to make this connection, you can turn over there if you want to to Galatians chapter 2. And if you turn there, I'll put some of these on the screen, but you can be looking in your own Bible as well. In in Galatians chapter 2, the chapter begins there in Antioch. And uh, it says in verse 4 that that Paul and Barnabas were aware of some who were spying out their freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so so that they might bring us into slavery. He had said earlier, in verse 3, if you're looking at your Bible, that they had tried to force Paul's missionary companion Titus to be circumcised. That's why he says, uh, but, but even Titus, who was with me, with me, was not forced to be circumcised 
though he was a Greek. Well, why would he say that unless they were trying to force him to be circumcised? This, this Greek, this Gentile believer. Why did, why did Paul not allow that to happen? He says in verse 5, because the truth of the gospel was at stake. But the most shocking section of, of chapter 2, of Galatians chapter 2, comes a little later in the chapter, beginning in verse 11. Look there, verses 11 to 13. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that would be from Jerusalem, he, he Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. These are these guys that, that Paul's talking about in Acts 15. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Stop right there for a second. So it says when, when, when it says that Peter was eating with the Gentiles, that alone was contrary to the, to the Old Testament law, that he would be sitting at a table with them, let alone further that he was probably, no doubt, eating the food that they were eating. He was eating food that, not only was he sitting with Gentiles, he was eating food that was, that was forbidden by the Old Testament law. Why was Peter doing that? Because he knew. He, he, he had already been given. Remember back in Acts chapter 10 when he was with Cornelius and his family? God had already given him a vision three times of a sheet coming down from heaven, all kinds of animals coming on that sheet, and animals that they were not allowed to eat per Old Testament law. And three times God told Peter, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Kill and eat. So Peter knew that, that Jesus had fulfilled the law and that that salvation in Christ is now by grace alone through faith alone. We're no longer bound by these laws for our acceptance before God. Yet it says here in verse 12 that when some came from Jerusalem, referred to as the circumcision party, those who still very much took the law of Moses very seriously, Peter was afraid of them and separated himself and acted hypocritically. Like I said, that circumcision party in Galatians 2 is the same group in Acts 15 saying these Gentiles must keep the law of Moses or else they cannot be saved. Paul opposed Peter to his face for his conduct. Why? Not because, Peter, why are you acting so strange? You're acting weird. What's happened? He's not, no, notice the reason that Paul opposed Peter to his face in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I think this whole episode is in the background of what happens in Acts chapter 15. You can go back to Acts chapter 15. The issue is, what makes someone a Christian? What makes someone a Christian? Paul, said, Paul had gone from town to town to town and said, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's his gospel. But there were some Jews who had no doubt come to faith in Christ at some measure, come to believe that he was the Messiah, wanted to associate themselves as being Christians, who were still saying that circumcision and obedience to the law was necessary. In Paul's mind, that's a different gospel. Right? Needless to say, whatever dust-up happened there in verse 2, that no small dissension and debate, it didn't, it didn't uh, end, the, end the matter. It didn't resolve the matter. So they convened a council in Jerusalem to consider. This is the issue at stake. What is the gospel? With, with more and more Gentiles coming to repentance and faith, what are we to tell them? What are we to tell them about what it means to become a Christian and how one becomes a Christian? Is it faith alone in Christ? Or is it faith plus obedience to the law? Faith plus something else. Yes, you must believe, but you must also do this. 
It's pretty fundamental. So with that context in mind, let's look now at what takes place at the council. Look beginning in verse 4. It says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they had a warm reception, Paul and Barnabas did. And they, the, the church in Jerusalem wanted to hear all about their first missionary journey. What had God done through you in all these Gentile cities? And it talks about, and they told them, hey, Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. All, and they shared all that God had done. But then verse 5 happens, and the other faction, the circumcision party, speaks up. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, which Galatians 2 calls the circumcision party, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law. Now that's interesting on a couple of levels. Notice very carefully in verse 5 that they are referred to as believers, right? But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, they didn't have all of their doctrine situated out in their, in their, in their mind, but on some level, they profess faith in Jesus. They're still Pharisees, but they have professed allegiance to Jesus on some level. I don't believe that this group was just out and out trying to deny or reject Jesus or the gospel, but they needed correcting. Okay? It's, and I say that because it's easy in passages like these to see these believing Pharisees as the bad guys, right? That they're evil people teaching a false gospel. But I, I mean, I, th- I think if we were there, we, we might find that these guys were probably more like us than we'd like to believe. If we're just completely honest. I don't think that just thinking they're the bad guys and they're the evil guys teaching a false gospel teach, it tells the whole story. I, I think these 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 believers of the, of the Pharisees who were even uh, troubling Paul and Barnabas with these Gentiles, circumcise them, keep, tell them to keep the law of Moses. I, even though it troubled them, I, if I give them the benefit of the doubt, I think they had a genuine concern to see holiness in the lives of these Gentile believers who were coming out of wildly pagan backgrounds. To see holiness in their lives. See, them living holy lives, but they went about it the wrong way. Right, rather than than encouraging that that good works are the fruit of faith in Christ, they were still confused in their thinking that our good works and obedience to the law was the root of the gospel, right? Which changes the gospel altogether. So both sides present their their case. Paul and Barnabas speak, then the the Pharisees speak, the rest of the apostles deliberated they debated for a while and then in verse 7 Peter stands up and he recounts to them the things that he saw at Pentecost he recounts to them um, the things that happened when he was with Cornelius and his family and by the time this happens that chapter 10 and that that deal with Cornelius probably was seven or eight years earlier but Peter is saying I saw firsthand that God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles He didn't make a distinction between Jews who were trying to keep the law and Gentiles who were not. And he asks the question in verse 10, why would we want to place a a yoke on their neck that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's basically saying to the Jews, none of us have kept the law. We're not even spiritually able to keep the law. 
So why in the world would we try to try to uh, require the Gentiles to keep it? Moreover, that misrepresents the gospel. And he says something very interesting in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, he's turning the tables. He do, he, I think he's speaking to the Pharisees here. And notice he doesn't say they, the Gentiles, will be saved just like we, the Jews, will be. He doesn't say that. He says we, the Jews, will be saved just like they will be. He's guarding against legalism. He, he, he totally affirms the gospel that Paul was preaching of grace alone through faith alone. And he says that both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved in the same way. It's faith alone apart from works of the gospel. So Peter, when Peter is finished, the elder statesman stands up. James, this is the James who is the, the, uh, the brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, who was a leader of the church in Jerusalem, who would eventually 14 years later be martyred stoned to death for his faith but he stands up and he speaks and he says this influx of gentiles this was foretold by the prophets he quotes amos but no doubt he quotes other prophets as well and 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 he and he says that because the salvation that has come to has come freely in christ no one should be required to keep the law and they wrote a letter um, to the gentile churches letting them know that we don't believe you should keep the law to be saved we don't preach a legalistic gospel, that it's faith plus you must look a certain way. It's not faith in Christ, you must do these things as well. It's not a legalistic gospel. Now that may sound like a no-brainer to us as you sit here today. Of course that's what we preach. You know, it's not faith plus anything else. But you have to understand that in this day, all of this was still being worked out in real time. Like, these were guys who were seeking to understand Scripture in the light of the coming of Christ without any benefit of a New Testament to help them. You know what I'm saying? They had the Old Testament, and now that Christ had come, they were, they were, they were thinking deeply about what the, the Old Testament had promised to come and now what Christ had taught, but they had no, none of these New Testament books that we have to give the clarity that we now have. What a gift from the Lord to give them the wisdom that they and the insight into the Scriptures. They needed to get the gospel right when there was so much pressure on them to get it wrong. The pressure was so deep that, remember in Galatians 2, even Peter went astray because he, he was afraid of what these guys might think. But that brings us to the final point. We've seen the context of the problem. We've seen the counsel they had to, to address it. But let's take a closer look quickly at the letter they wrote laying out their conclusions and the correction that they uh, gave to the false gospel being pushed, of this legalistic gospel. So they wrote this letter, and at first glance, it might surprise you. How so? Because what have they done? They, who have they sided with? They didn't side with the Pharisees. They said, no, we don't want to tell them they got to keep the law. They sided with Paul and Barnabas, grace alone through faith alone. We don't need to tell them they need to be circumcised or keep the law. We're siding with grace through faith. But then they proceed to write a letter that seems to be a bunch of rules to keep. Doesn't it? They side with grace through faith. But then look at verse 20. The letter they write to them tells them to abstain from things polluted by idols, Abstain from sexual morality, 
from what has been strangled and from blood. And you might read that and go, what? I don't think it's as off the wall as it might seem. I think what they're going to do is, having sided against a legalistic gospel on this side, and siding with grace alone through faith alone, now when they come to this side and write to the Gentiles, they're, not, they're going to guard them against a licentious gospel. Guard them against license. Legalism is not the way to go. License is not the way to go. Christ is the way to go. <laughs> okay? And I don't think these are as off the walls as it might seem. I, certainly, I don't think it's a contradiction to the conclusion that they had just reached about the law of Moses. Because if you look closely, um, they're not telling them that these are things that they must do to be saved. In other words, they say, in fact, they say uh, in, in verse 29, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Not if you do these things, you will be saved. You will do well. What does that mean? Well, what are they doing? They're clear that, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but that doesn't mean that our lives thereafter, our conduct, our decisions toward God and neighbor don't matter. You know, they're guarding against license. Our actions matter a great deal. And they pointed to these issues to bear in mind especially. If you look at them, it isn't surprising at all, for example, that they said abstain from sexual immorality. They're Gentiles in a pagan culture where sexual immorality was rampant. Uh, sexual immorality was part of their acts of worship to their pagan deities, right? So it's not surprising at all that they had to, to fight against that. This is just true to today as it was then. That's a moral issue. What about the other things mentioned here that they're to abstain from? Like, they don't, the other things don't seem like purely moral issues like, like uh, sexual immorality. Well, like, for example, uh, abstain from uh, meat sacrifice or things that have been uh, polluted by idols. Or you, you think, for example, meat that had been sacrificed by idols. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 that it's not necessarily a sin to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. It's de- but it, what's it depending on? It's depending on your conscience. If your conscience bothers you to eat that meat, don't eat that meat. It also depends on the conscience of your neighbor. If you're totally cool with eating that meat, but it's going to make your neighbor, neighbor stumble, don't eat that meat. Right? That's precisely the point that he's getting at here. In, in this letter, when he says uh, to abstain from things polluted by idols, he's helping the Gentiles love their Gentile neighbors well and bear, and, and bear witness to the gospel to them. Put their conscience and their soul before your freedom. But what about the other things? Things that have been strangled and from blood. What? Well, he's not giving them a law to keep. These are things that would have been offensive to Jews. And he's helping them love their Jewish neighbors well. Not to offend them unnecessarily for the sake of the gospel. He's telling these Gentiles that this letter is being written to that you live in a world of, you live in a a pagan Gentile world, but there are still Jews and Jewish believers in every city uh, and 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 who believe that these other things are very important. So just as you have received grace from Jesus, show grace 
And just because you have the freedom to do something in Christ, don't do it if it will offend another believer unnecessarily or cause an unbeliever to stumble further away from Christ. What he's basically telling them is this. You are saved by grace alone, but don't abuse the grace that you've been given. How can we be sure? So he's, he, it seems to me he's guarding against both legalism and license. That uh, um, not recognizing freedom at all and abusing freedom. That seems to be the tightrope that he's, that he's walking. How can we be sure that, that that's right, that that's what he's doing? I want to show you one more thing that I think illustrates this perfectly. Do you remember, we don't have time to turn back there, but do you remember when we were in Galatians chapter 2? And he talked about the circumcision party that came down from Jerusalem and uh, to Antioch. And do you remember, uh, in addition to telling them that they needed to keep the law, remember they tried to, to uh, force Titus to be circumcised? Titus the Greek, the Gentile, companion of Paul, tried to force him to be circumcised. And what did Paul do? He refused. I will not circumcise him. Why? He said, because the truth of the gospel is at stake. I'm not going to force him to be circumcised. That would misrepresent what the gospel is, right? So, Titus, you got to be circumcised? No, he does not have to be circumcised. I won't circumcise him, okay? Well, now, keep that in mind, and if just look right over. If you have to flip one page, flip it. But in chapter 16, the very next chapter, the very next episode after this council, Look at, look at uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So did you catch that? Paul took Timothy to be circumcised. So he refused for Titus to be circumcised, but he willingly circumcised Timothy. What in the world? It was all in the situation. In Titus's case, the Jews, Jewish believers, were commanding Paul to do it. He must do this to be saved. And Paul said, no, he doesn't. Uh-uh. And so he refused. He did not want to misrepresent the gospel. In Timothy's case, mother was Jewish, father was Greek. Nobody was demanding that he be circumcised. Nobody was commanding it. This was all of, of their own volition. And so at, they wanted to go minister among Jews and so as not to unnecessarily offend them or put a stumbling block in front of them. When Timothy accompanied Paul, he was circumcised. He didn't... He didn't abuse their, their license. And, 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 he did, and, and in that case, even though he circumcised Timothy, to, to, in that case, it wouldn't misrepresent the gospel. They wouldn't think anything of it. In Titus's case, it would have it was misrepresented the gospel. So we don't, we don't keep the law to be saved, but we gladly give up our freedoms if it helps us bear witness to Christ. That's the essence of what they wrote. And we're told in verse 31, back in chapter 15, that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They didn't see it as overbearing. They didn't see it as a bunch of rules that were hard to keep. They didn't find it stifling. They didn't find it legalistic at all. Well, 
This may not be the most exciting and riveting story in the book of Acts. I mean, quite frankly, it's not. When you have all kinds of miracles and crazy things happening, people being let down out of windows and people being raised up from the dead, this is not the most riveting chapter. But honestly, I I cannot think of one that is more important or one that perhaps has had more influence on us today than this one. I rejoice in the fact that in, in, in these early days of the church, the Lord watched over the apostles and the other believers as they fought for the pure gospel that every generation has the same in their, in, their, uh, in their day. Scripture still commands us in Jude 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I'm glad that we were able to reconvene at this council with them today. Let's pray.